Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 7 of the Average to Elite podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lowe, and today we have our very first guest episode where I've invited Dr. Josh Dal jones aboard to speak about uh, developing the rugby player. So Josh not only has a huge amount of experience within sort of research, looking at um, how we can develop rugby players, but actually on the front lines, uh, working with professional rugby players is himself. So Josh is one of the SNC coaches at Bath Rugby. So he's really looking at the long-term rehabilitation of players. Uh, he's also a research fellow at Leeds Back University. I've worked with uh, Josh previously at Wasps, where he's the head of academy athletic development. And prior to that, Josh was with uh, Yorkshire Carnegie as a strength and conditioning coach there. So I thought it'd be absolutely amazing Josh, to get Josh on board today and talk about everything regarding um, physical development with rugby players. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. So Josh, uh, big thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, like I mentioned, you are guest number one of the Average Tourity podcast. Um, so a big thank you again and a big welcome. Um, so what I'd love to get into today is essentially how a rugby player can go from average to elite from a strength and condition perspective. So essentially from an SSC standpoint, how can we develop a rugby player? So to set the scene, what would you say the key characteristics are um, for, a, for an elite rugby player? So what I'm trying to think of is if we define what the ideal is and guess what, like your definitions there in terms of the key characteristics that they need to have, and then we can work back from it through other sort of questions. So first question, what are the key characteristics of uh, an elite rugby player? Um, firstly, hi, mate, and thanks for having me on. Uh, when you told me I was the first person on, I shit myself a little bit. Um, so I suppose your, your question is interesting. So for, from the I ideal perspective, so what would you want the ideal person to be? Um, I suppose fa fairly simply, the ideal person would be the right height and the right weight for their position. So there's very positions across the rugby, um, rugby union team. So you need someone who's going to be six foot six plus in the second row. You probably don't want that if you're in a, if you're a scrum half. You want heavy forwards, you want lighter backs. Um, they need to be strong. Um, they need to be strong enough. Now that there's, there's debate around that, how strong is strong enough. Um, but I'm sure we can get into that later. Uh, and then probably two, two of the other key uh, characteristics are speed. So you break that down into two components. So you've got acceleration and top speed. Rugby is a primarily acceleration-based sport. It's very stop-start. Um, you want someone to be able to accelerate quickly. If they see a gap, they need to be able to go through it. Um, it's it's those game-changing moments when you break the line that um, increase your chance of winning, I suppose. Um, and if you're faster than your opposition, you're probably going to have more of them. Uh, and then I suppose the, the other underpinning thing for, for on-field training is aerobic fitness. You need to be fit. Um, like I said, it's a very stop-start game. There's a lot of high-intensity action. So basically to recover from that, they need to have a massive engine. But again, it needs to be fit for purpose for them, for their position, for their size. 
um, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. That that's very cool. So, in terms of uh, when we look at developing these favorable characteristics, um, how do you go at sort of developing these throughout the different age groups or sort of play levels? So, what would you say the natural sort of process looks like? Say, all the way from academy level, so junior academy, senior, then going into the first team, or it's, and I guess that kind of goes in line with the age groups as well. Again, under 15s, 16s, going to 18s and then 20 plus years old. So is there say specific um, areas that you look to develop in those sort of age frames? So it would be a case of the junior guys, we focus on say building an engine, building strength. What's the most important thing given those key um, sort of stages of development? Um, it's a really tough one to answer because uh, academy kids, you don't have a lot of time with them. You might see them one or two times a week, depending on on their age. So if they're if they're under fifteen, under sixteen kids, you may see them once or twice. If they're under eighteen, probably the same. Um, so you have to almost you have to decide what your big rocks are of your of your SNC program for those kids. Um, and a lot of the time, it's probably getting them into the gym, um, getting them competent under a bar, um, and then when they are competent. Um, begin to load them up so they can get stronger, so they can get bigger. Uh, and then the majority of the other time uh, is, is normally given to rugby training. So um, my, my bias is that the biggest bang for buck is to get them strength training as, as young kids. Um, like we, we know that it is good for tissue tolerance. It's good for reducing uh, injury risk at soft tissue. Um, we know it helps develop power. We know to some extent that it helps um, increases in, in speed, primarily acceleration. So um, if you're looking for, for, for one aspect of training that's probably going to carry over to a lot of the other stuff I mentioned, it's probably teaching them to lift. And then when they're technically competent across whatever you've decided your key lifts are, um, start loading them, um, take it slowly. Um, and then as, as they transition through phases, just increase intensity, increase volume. Um, and then th that, it's a cycle that sort of goes on and on and on, I suppose, until you're at first team. And then probably within then, the gym is still really important. But, in, but from taking it back from academy level, the, the one thing that's going to probably help the most is, is strength training. Um, we, we can't influence their, their height. So they're going to be however tall they, they're going to be. Uh, the other thing we can influence massively is, is their size as, as kids. So as well as getting them under bar strength training, underpinning speed, power, etc., reducing injury risk, we know that kids kids will just put on lean mass for fun. Um, my, my PhD, as I, I took some notes earlier, my PhD shows on average from under 16s to senior academy, players will put on 20 to 25% body mass, which is massive. It's, it's probably the most weight they're going to gain um, in their life in, in a condensed period of time, other than when you're, when you're a, a small child growing up. Um, yeah, so there's... Is, I suppose, yeah, strength training. Yeah, that, that's very cool. 
like I know, say, working with, say, perhaps the older age groups, whether it be senior academy or first team, um, you know, our only real opportunity to build muscle now is, say, in perhaps a little bit off-season, but realistically in pre-season. And, you know, given, like, say, six to eight-week kind of training block to build muscle, you're not really going to see significant gains in muscle mass or strength in that period of time. So would you say, like, the most of the development should be done at, say, the junior level? if you know you're going to put on maybe 25% of your body mass throughout this time, is it a case of just going all in during that time and perhaps put most of emphasis on like player development then? And then it's perhaps just slowly building um, as you go through the older age groups? Uh, yeah, and... Yeah, I mean, the, the, they are, they're never going to put on that amount of size. They're never going to get that, put on that amount of strength that quickly ever again. Um, if, if you have a kid um, coming at under 16 and they enter senior academy at 18 years of age, so back end of their 18th year, close to 19, um, if, they've been, if they've been in the programme and they haven't had any big injuries and they're trained consistently, they're, they're, probably, they're probably already squatting twice body weight. There's a good possibility they're, they're hitting numbers that, that people would expect. Or, or, or ones that seem like they're probably benching one and a half times body weight if, if they've had that consistent training. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I think is the short answer. I think we, there's there's other bits and pieces that academy age group that, that you want to sort of drip feed in. So you will, you'll do little bits of, of speed work. You'll do conditioning at various times of the year at different age groups. But, yeah, mate, strength. Strength training is so powerful um, that, yeah, I, I would say if, if there was one thing that, yeah, hammer it. And I suppose the caveat being at an academy level, you're not there to chase numbers. Like if you if you give them a good program and, and give them good coaching, they will just get better. Um, it makes us look good when we're the academy SNC coaches because you see this massive improvement. But in fact, it's... It's just they have really favourable hormonal state. Um, it's a new stimulus when they start training, so they're going to get better anyway. Um, but yeah, mate, it's it's it is just it is so powerful that I think you you have to you have to really really invest in it and make sure that by the time they get to senior academy, um, you're literally probably putting the icing on the cake. Like they they're strong, they can comp- they can um, tolerate. Uh, I suppose higher volumes, higher intensities, higher frequencies of training. So, so if the opportunity comes, if they transition into the first team, they can just slot in. I mean, their program might still be slightly different, but if you're expected to lift four days a week and you get airdropped in early as a senior academy player, you want to be in there, I suppose. So, yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. So would you say perhaps some of the like newbie gains you kind of see, i.e. increase the 25% of body weight is primarily down to, yeah, just this initial sort of stimulus, like favorable environment to grow, additional support from nutrition, all that kind of stuff. And it just kind of all comes together and it's just a perfect sort of scenario for building mass. Uh, yeah, I mean, and It'd be pretty interesting. I don't have everything in front of me. It'd be interesting to see how much of how much of that weight they've put on between that sort of in those in that first two years, some of the sixteens, under eighteens, because the majority of it could be them. Um, but yeah, you have you have a brand new stimulus that is is really really strong. Your body reacts really well to it. 
you have this huge, huge amount of testosterone flooding your system through puberty and adolescence. It's basically, it's, it's free games. All you have to do is go in, turn up at the gym, lift, push yourself, listen to your coach, make sure mom and dad are feeding you. Um, and yeah, you, you, you will generally put on a, a lot of mass and a lot of strength. I think if, if you're lucky enough to have access to a nutritionist, so when me and you work together, the, the kids are pretty lucky. A lot of, I think some of the academies probably don't have that. Um, but yeah, it's, you have you have almost everything. Sort of the, the stars align for you to to get big and strong. Yeah, nice. So that's the big, very much the main big fundamental rock for yeah the junior sort of academy guys, sort of like 15, 16, 17 year olds. When you move into the sort of senior academy, you know, sort of eighteen years plus, what would you say is the main, the biggest rock they need to sort of be looking at then? Is a case of um, you kind of maintain strength, but dial other areas of overall sort of physical performance up, i.e. speed work, building an engine, or is it a case of everything comes up? Do you prioritize certain areas over over others? Uh, I think it's it's all. I suppose it's always athlete dependence, and there's there's always going to be kids who are transitioned into senior academy who aren't the aren't pushing out the big numbers and who haven't put on all the mass. So that that those guys might still concentrate a bit more on the gym. Um, but I suppose the, the the beauty of Senior Academy and it being a full-time programme is you get to see them four or five days a week. So you get, you've gone from having two half-hour slots or two two-hour slots in a week to having four to five full days. That's not all filled with uh, S&C training. There's rugby, there's other bits and pieces, there's recovery, there's food. There's psychology, there's nutrition, um, but having that having that extra time allows allows you to do more stuff. So, like you say, um, they're more than likely going to get more speed exposures. So that's normally they have an opportunity to do probably twice a week speed sessions if it fits in the schedule. Um, whereas before at academy level, they might have done might have done two speed sessions but those two speed sessions might have been sprint 20 meters at the end of your wall and jog over there because your rugby session is about to start rather than technical sessions so yeah you, you, you have more time to concentrate on that and then I suppose the, the, the other big thing is probably the um, jumping volume that they will need to sort of bridge the gap of so um, their training they might do a lot of training as young kids because they might be playing uh, rugby for school and academy and wherever else. They might be doing multiple sports up until they're sort of 17, 18. So they might do a lot of volume, um, but the intensity of the training probably isn't going to be as high as, as a senior environment. So you take that opportunity in senior academy to try and bridge that gap, expose them to more intense conditioning, more intense um, rugby training um, with the hope that you you can sort of like I say bridge that gap from being an, an 18 year old kid child who's playing with mates at school and playing all these different things to an 18 year old adult who if he's asked to go and train with the first team or if he does train full time with the first team he can go out there tolerate the session first of all because if you if you can't last the session that's not going to be that's, that's not going to be good for you um, and you're probably not going to be asked to train too often and 
not only do you want them to tolerate, you want them to thrive in it as well, because you want those kids who you've worked with for four years, you want them to put their hand up and say, look, I'm actually good enough to be in that first team. So, yeah, I suppose the, 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 other, the other ones, the other, other big rocks, I suppose, that you end up focusing on are probably your speed and your conditioning. Your, your strength is normally there or thereabouts if you've been in the programme for four years. Yeah, very nice. Sense. Yeah, for sure. So when you get to that point, it's a case of the majority of your, or perhaps ninety percent of your strength gains are kind of ticked off, and then it's just more emphasis on like the speed and the conditioning side um, yeah. of things. So yeah, that's cool. So I guess like as we go through the different age groups, you can have perhaps uh, well, definitely have different training loads. So I guess one question is is like, can you perhaps quantify the training loads at different age groups and almost have different uh, say standards for it so they know that they can tolerate higher loads as they go through so is it like almost certain benchmarks for different age groups that you can look at in terms of overall training load and so on and do you mean do you mean sort of global training load or are we talking on feet or gym or yeah i guess like global i guess like when you put everything together can you quantify everything like X player has done this amount of load this week and this is how much he needs to hit as a threshold to be able to almost like survive and thrive into the next um, phase of development. Mate, it's, 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 a, it's, a really, it's a really hard thing, hard question to answer. Um, I suppose one of, one, of the, one of the studies that came out of our research group at um, Leeds Becker, they, one of, one of the uh, researchers guy called uh, Paddy Fibbs basically gave out GPS units to all the academy kids and said, wear it for all your other training sessions this week, or I can't remember how many weeks it was off the top of my head. Um, and you've got, you've got kids who are 16, 17, 18 years old, and I think that the highest, highest volume of training one kid did one week was around 30K. Now, that, is, that probably far exceeds anything that a premiership rugby player would be expected to do, including a game. So... You've got kids who are being exposed to volumes of work that are far exceeding anything that you'd ask of an elite player. Um, and then even the variability within that group of players, I think like, I think the lowest was around uh, 8K and that same kid had done somewhere in the high 20s as well. So you've got this massive variation week on week in training loads that these kids do. Um, I think that the big difference... Um, is the probably the intensity of games so we know we know school rugby isn't as intense as academy rugby and we know that as you progress through different levels of rugby the the game gets more intense whether that's through either running loads or number of contacts um so it's it's really hard to, to set a standard um but they they basically need to be able to tolerate more and more intensity from either, whether that be more meters per minute uh, with when the ball's in play more high speed running more number of sprints in a game um, and then as they get older the contact level just skyrocket and then depending on your position you need to be able to tolerate more and more contact and it's getting more and more vicious at a younger age um, I don't know if that's answered your question yeah that's cool i think um i know just everybody loves standards like almost have as a, a checkpoint 
it's like, okay, I've done this amount of load, right, take that, I'm now suitable to, you know, almost like graduate this phase and go into the next phase, kind of transition on. Um, and on the kind of subject of sort of, um, you know, standards, again, everybody loves like a standard to hit. You kind of mentioned like, maybe boys should be squatting like say double body weight, bench 1.5 times. Is there any kind of strength standards you know of, whether it's like, um, like a nationally recognized sort of uh, standard or one that you developed that by an athlete at or rugby player at this age group should be hitting this kind of standard and so on. Whether it's a case of perhaps um, strength-wise, speed, body composition, have you got any sort of thoughts on that kind of area? Um, I think as I think it, it it depends who you're referring to. I think academy age group. I think it's I think it's some, sometimes detrimental to to set standards because kids, if a kid sees it, a young kid especially, there's probably there's more chance that they will probably go away and, and try and do more and more and more of X, Y, or Z to, to hit the strength standard or the size standard. And you want them, you want them to do good training not, and not training that's potentially going to be dangerous for them or, or injure them. Um, and then at, at senior level, um, that's, that's not really my job to set standards. So... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the strength guys at, at Bath have, have set the standards and yeah it's majority of time based on previous experience so it, it's it's normally anecdote but yeah that's that that's pretty much where we're at I mean you and I did some work around skinfold standards for the senior academy boys at Wasps uh, worked quite well um, and actually held them to account. I'd say, I'd say for older academy kids, it's useful. Like in senior academy boys, it's, it's good for them to have a target to chase. If you know that the guy who's playing every week in your position is X, Y, Z for strength, speed, fitness, um, it's probably a good driver. Um, the, that does not take into account any aspect of skill, though. So it, if that guy is the best in the world and has those really, really good uh, and well-developed physical characteristics is going to be pretty hard for you to dethrone him. So I'd probably say, yeah, it, it's, it's multifaceted and it's hard to, to give a solid answer. Yeah, that, that's why I asked it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Like, I guess from like the nutrition perspective and perhaps looking at the body composition, you know, if you've got a 15, 16 year old, you're not going to tell them like you need to be hitting this kind of standard because then it can develop like say abnormal eating behaviors and habits and stuff like that and perhaps get overly sort of um, compulsive, especially if they have to drop body fat and so on. Like you don't want to be overly restricting calorie intake at an early age because I might sort of interfere with overall development and maturation and stuff like that. So yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's more of a case of at that age group, almost like let the outcome be, be the outcome, give them the, give them the tools and point them in the right direction. And then when they sort of develop into the higher age groups, then we can get more specific with uh, numbers and statistics and stuff like that. And I, th- I think, I suppose, one, one other point on that, I think um, for, for a kid in the academy, certainly under 16, under 18, you progressing up the, up the levels is not going to be based on how strong you are, how fit or how, how fast you are. It is the, the, kid, the kids progress because they are the best 
player in that position or they're one of the best three players in their position. So they, they transition up. Like um, the, the most skilled player is probably always going to be the best one. Um, if the most skilled player then doesn't develop and isn't developed enough to then tolerate training or a game, then they're probably going to be deselected. But certainly at a younger age group, if you're the best player, you're probably going to get transitioned up, if that makes sense. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, very nice. So I guess like moving on from that then is a case of doing like players' um, overall developments. Like, you know, obviously they're going to be pretty self-aware, like this player's doing this, this player's doing that. They weigh 100 kilos, I weigh 90 kilos or so on. Um, you know, they're perhaps going to try, try and take things under their own sort of accord and try and chase their own goals. So what kind of like common issues do you see players um, have with regard to their own development? Is there any sort of ish, common issues that you see with them? Um, I think academy kids, I'm pr- I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head. Um, a lot of the time, um, doing too much. So that they're in this they're in this period of time where you do you do enough training, and you have this like I said before, you have this really really good hormonal environment. The testosterone is flowing through your blood. Um, as long as you're eating well, you are going to generally get better. You're going to recover um, from your training stimulus. Um, but ev- I think everywhere I've been so far, it's, it's been the, the younger kids trying to do too much because they've got this image in their head. They've, they've seen someone else um, who is better than them or perceives to be better than them in, in their position in the squad or the year off. And they're like, well, I'm going to go and do another gym session. Um, I lost count the amount of times I I had kids turn up for academy training and they'd done a massive gym session that day already. That and then you're like, well, you you can't lift today. But you do that and they probably go and lift again anywhere else. But it's like because you know best, you you can't make them then complete your program, which you know is probably going to be more beneficial for them because they've gone off and done their own stuff. Um, and that that's probably the the biggest thing with the younger kids. Um, the, I suppose the other thing is they're very they're very easily influenced through Instagram, social media. They they see someone doing a workout on social media or someone saying I do this diet and I look like this. They just crack on with it, and a lot of the time, as you and I both know, the the, the guy with the ripped abs doing the diet is is um, very very well supplemented, <laughs> shall we say? Um, and then I suppose uh, senior level. I think probably I think boredom. I think they I think I think a lot of senior guys probably suffer with boredom from repeatedly doing the same thing over and over and over again. Even though, as an S and C coach and you as a nutritionist know that you normally get the best results from doing really really basic things over and over and over again, and they are boring. Um, I suppose, and then. I suppose ways to almost combat that. Um, I don't really have that much to do with this because I'm the real man. Um, so I don't get too much of it. But I, th- I think need to keep find way, need to uh, keep finding ways of things being interesting for them. Um, and a lot of the time you can get them to do the same thing they've always done uh, without them always realising that if, if, you, if you put a little twist on it so whether you make conditioning competitive or you do some sort of other challenge they're still doing the same thing they've always done but they don't realize it and they enjoy it so yeah 
Yeah, that's nice. Um, you know, I think obviously we want, uh, especially from the nutrition standpoint, for players to have autonomy and think for themselves. But again, like you said, when they do get bored, um, especially like during lockdown now, they have more time to think for themselves. Um, they kind of like going away and just like thinking of random stuff to do. Um, you know, I've had so many countless messages of, Chris, what do you think of intermittent fasting? Oh, can I try keto during this time? Can I try this? Like, guys, you know what works, just stick to it. I appreciate it's boring, but sometimes, you know, excellence is found in boring. Like, you just have to do it on a repeated basis. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, every time you go into a rugby field, you don't try and relearn a new way of playing rugby because you got bored of the old type, you know, you know what works. So, you know, yeah. just try and keep it that. Um, I think um, a, a really interesting thing I saw the other day that sort of feeds into that. So it was from uh, a guy called Chris Toombs, and he was an SNC of Tigers and Cardiff Blues. I think he's over in America now, Major League Rugby. Um, and he, he said he'd done an audit of some of his old programs. Um, and he said over the, over the course of three years uh, with, with the academy, he'd only used 18 exercises. Uh, like you, you hear that and you think that is absolutely mad. But if you actually, if I look back at probably most, the majority of my programs for fit players, they probably fit. You just do the same thing over and over again. You just vary, vary how you do it. Um, but he, he he had some great stats on that. So it was, I think it was Cardiff Blues. Like I think 24 academy players transitioned to first team. I think there was nine guys went on to play for Wales, and there was three guys who went on to be British and Irish Lions. Now, it's not down to that programme necessarily, but I think it's, it's quite telling that you have that amount of success and you only do 18 exercises yeah, in like, your whole programme. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, success leaves clues. And, you know, it's oftentimes, like, do you see that, you know, new strength and conditioning coaches, perhaps, or even like personal trainers and stuff out there, they try and overcomplicate things to almost like boost their own ego and make them feel like they're, more competent than you actually are instead of like, you know, seeing the true value in the basics and just being um, really sort of reliant on them to generate sort of progress. Yeah. And I think, I think I would imagine you and I have both done that as well when we started out in our respective careers. Like I, yeah, if I, if I look back at some of my earlier programs, I've probably changed stuff every three weeks and done some absolutely like stupid, stupid shit. Um, Probably not as an ego boost, but probably because you just you don't understand necessarily that doing, doing the same thing over and over again is, is, is the best way to do it. But I think, I think you see any young SNC coach and, you, and you, you can see them doing it. And then there's a period, there's, there's something happens like, and then they go really, really simple and potentially go too simple. And then you find the middle ground. Um, but yeah, yeah, you see, you see it, you see it in, in everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, cool. So I guess um, moving on to like the your sort of area at the moment in terms of rehabilitation. So a player's like availability to train is, you know, as we know, is just extremely important. So how can we reduce the risk of injury um, in rugby players? And are there certain things we need to look out for in certain age groups? Um, I, suppose, I suppose we, we, we probably categorise injuries as um, contact and non-contact. So yeah, you would, 
generally say that if it's a contact injury, it's something that you couldn't have um, stopped happening because it's it's happened from a contact in the game. So that would probably more than likely be concussions, uh, like shoulder injuries, knee injuries, uh, ankle injuries, where someone's been hit. Um, and yeah, you 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 as an SNC coach or as a physiotherapist aren't going to stop them. There's there's uh, other other um, things at work. So World Rugby are trying to reduce. They're trying to do things with the tackle to reduce concussions. So it, it's rule change and behaviour change that's that's driving that. Um, the non-contact injuries are the ones that we all get worried about as a SNCs and physios, and the ones where when it happens, where someone pulls a hamstring or pulls a calf or tears their quad you go back through all your programs and you go back through everything else and you think what could I have done differently and sometimes there's a glaring error a lot of the times there's not because they're multifactorial um but I, I suppose take it back to your question um is is there certain types of injuries at different ages um my experience with academy um not had that many they don't seem to have that many soft tissue injuries um whether that's because they're not diagnosed or they don't um, tell us or they don't have any they don't have any severe enough to stop them training and they just crack on I don't know um, they're generally contact based um, and you normally will see a spike in them in that the first two or three weeks after pre-season when they start playing at school um, and it's it's nothing to do and it's nothing to do with the fact that they're playing school rugby. They probably they, they get injured playing academy rugby. It's just the fact you go from a training environment where you might have done some really controlled contact and then you go into chaos. Um and I suppose the, the one thing with with the school rugby is sometimes they're playing two games a week. So you have this cycle of play, fatigue. Um, you can't train again necessarily hard enough to get any adaptation to reduce your risk of injury or whatever it is and you play again. Um, but yeah, gem generally academy kids are, are more contact based, certainly at 16s and 18s. Um, and then senior academy, when they when they get that period of time where they have more exposure to training, so four or five days a week, you will pick up more soft tissue injuries. Um, yeah, and then within the seniors, there's 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 contact injuries, there's non-contact injuries. Um, I think re really interesting. Uh, hamstring and calf have been the top two injuries in training since 2012 from the England from England's audit, um, and hamstring injury has been in the top five injuries since 2012 uh, for matches as well, and is is trending upwards. So, um, but they're they're the main injuries that we're seeing. Um, in terms of what we can do to mitigate those risks, uh, good training. So in, in terms of the hamstring and calf, so there's so much evidence out there around uh, hamstring strains and reducing the risk of hamstring strains by doing Nordic curls. Um, there's, there's a research group in Queensland who've showed you can do as little as uh, two sets of three reps a week and your risk of injury will remain pretty low. Um, there's there's research showing that you can preferentially target bicep femoris um, muscle in your hamstring, which is the one that normally pings when you're sprinting. Um, so there's 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 this information out there for people to use. Um, then then they just need to implement it. I suppose 
you can't just reduce someone's risk in the gym though. Um, they need to have exposure to sprinting, safe exposure, so not too much, but they need to have enough so they've been exposed so the tissue's ready to sprint when they need to do it in a game. Um, and their training loads, their on-feet training loads, so their, their numbers, their high-speed running, their sprint meters, you don't want them just spiking massively and varying, varying week on week. So you, in pre-season, you probably want them gradually increasing, and then you probably want to hold it stable throughout the season and target times to push a little bit and pull back a little bit. Um, and then the, the same with, with the calf. Um, you can you can train your calf, like you can train your hamstring, you can eccentrically load it, you can you can train your gastroc, you can train your soleus. Um, there's, there's literature out there showing showing training programs and 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 uh, and highlighting what is most injurious for, for calf muscles. Um, so um, yeah, it's good good training and good training load management essentially. Yeah, nice. I guess that's in terms of minimizing risk. So you can almost flip that on the head in terms of ways that would increase injury risk. I poor training and poor training load. Yeah, and I mean, like you, you, yeah, I think poor, poor training, poor training load, even potentially poor sequencing of training within within a day as well. If you if you've been in the gym in the morning and done your Nordics and you've done your hip extension exercises and you're an inexperienced SNC coach and you get someone to do maximal RDLs as well and you they absolutely fried their hamstrings and then and then you go out and sprint them and then you do a full field session. I mean the the chance of something happening is probably pretty high. Yeah. Like you you fatigue the muscle, you've then fatigued it further sprinting and then you're gonna go and do a field session. So yeah, I think there's the the interesting the interesting thing and the hard thing is putting everything together to make sure that you do all of that. So you want you want them to do the exercises, you want them to sprint, you want you need them to do the field session. It's just it's how, how you do it in the day and I suppose your dose. I yeah. think that's the that's the that's the puzzle that every practitioner has to, to get right. Yeah, that is chaos. So that's kind of like what I was um, trying to get at perhaps uh, with my training load question is like when we put everything together, how do you know if enough is enough and if too much is too much so like i said if they're doing nordics then they're doing sort of their hip extension work then go and do the sprinting how do you know if someone can tolerate that if they can't tolerate it and then in terms of how do you formalize a program from that then that's a great question um i, I, I suppose i suppose you, you you're never going to know if you have stopped someone getting injured because if they're not injured, you, you don't know if you were going to injure them, if that makes sense. So the, the, on, the only time you know you've done too much for a player is when they actually get injured. So um, just I suppose just because they don't get injured doesn't mean that that's the limit of their tolerance as well. So you, you, you could do a really, really, really daft training programme, like I said. So you do all those hamstring exercises, sprint, do a field session and your whole cohort might not get injured. I think it, a, a critical coach would look at it and say, just because they didn't get injured doesn't mean it's a good day's training. Yeah. Essentially, because you've absolutely ruined someone for a day. Um, it's, a, it's a really hard question to answer. 
Um, <laughs> so could you potentially look at like RPE, like ratings of perceived exertion for like different sessions and kind of quantify it that way? Or is it not overly um, realistic in terms of rugby with different training modalities and stuff? Yeah, yeah I suppose if you, want, if you wanted a measure of overall load, you could do RPE. Um, it's, it's a tough one though. So you might go into your gym session, it might be a really hard gym session, they might give you massive RPE. So if, they go, if you go from, uh, if you're only going up to 10, they might give eight or nine. So however long and you might have a, a large amount of training units um which looks really big um if you take them out to do a sprint session though and you do i suppose what we call a proper sprint session where you have a decent warm-up you have efforts but you have adequate rest and i say adequate rest we're talking three four five minutes between efforts you ask someone to give an rp then and nearly every single time they'll get they'll say uh get easy but the thing is the actual strain on the tissue in the hamstring, in the calf, around the hip, the glutes is massive in 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 that session. So you don't you don't pick up, I suppose you don't pick up the stress on the tissue from the RPE. I think um, I think as a practitioner you have to understand that that's massively stressful on on the tissue that we're talking about here, which is I suppose primarily hamstring. So you probably don't want to do that with all your hamstring exercises and a massive field session same day. I think there's a experience goes a long way and, and understanding what, what you are stressing with what exercise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really like that in terms of RP is not necessarily going to translate that well for like sprint type stuff. I guess if you're doing your, perhaps your bro kind of sprint session where you're doing, you know, 10 times 100 meters with 10 seconds sort of turnarounds, you know, <laughs> you probably could, but if you're doing like a proper sprint session, like you said, it's probably not overly yeah. that I think effective. You'll, yeah, and you'll, you'll, you'll see higher RPEs for sessions that are metabolic. So anything where someone's been working either the top end of aero, aerobic capacity or, or where it's genuinely an anaerobic session where they're doing um, repeated sprints or sprint interval work where they're going as hard as they can for a set period of time, RPE there is going to be massive in comparison to something that is... I suppose more of a neural exercise with such as a sprint yeah absolutely definitely worth um considering that because i know some boys who think like more is more and if they don't feel absolutely fucked from that session they're like well i'm so fresh i'm going to do another gym session but they probably yeah. don't know that um yeah so i think you see that quite often especially when the boys come into my office like yeah don't tell them i'm going to do biceps again <laughs> you know? yeah no it's definitely a definitely a case they just love benching um so when it comes to like say yearly periodization, uh, obviously within like um, the rugby season, you can have off season, pre season, and in season. How does the training approach differ for each type of phase? Is there specific things you look at in say like an off season versus a pre season versus an in season? Um, yeah, so I suppose the, the the first thing that I've always told players that I've been uh, in charge of for off season is actually use your time to relax. So they they get five weeks holiday, and then we're talk. I suppose we're talking about senior academy players here that that fall under that remit. So they will follow a first team schedule essentially and have all the first team rules. So they they have to have a five week holiday. So 
the way the way I've always worked is they have two weeks where um, it's full downtime. Like I think we're not even allowed to contact them. Um, go away, relax, let loose, do whatever you want within reason, um, and and regenerate. Um, and then, and normally they they will leave um, with a three week training program. Um, so that that takes them all the way up to day one of pre-season. Um, and I suppose depending where you are, what what club you're at, there might be a slightly different focus for that um, training program. Um, the way uh, I did it when you and I were at the same club, um, there was a big focus on uh, running volume in the senior squad. So a, a lot of their pre-season work was around prepping them to be able to get involved with first team training if they were asked to. So there was a big emphasis on running, but that wasn't the only thing. They were still doing their injury reduction work. They were still doing their strength training. They were still doing uh, speed work as well. But the the big focus was get ready and get up, up to speed so you can hit, hit pre-season uh, pretty hard when you get in. So we don't have to start really low and build up. Um, and I suppose pre-season, um, I think players just need to take the opportunity to improve. Like you, you have, depending on how how long the preseason is, you run six to, I think we had a twelve week preseason this year, six to twelve weeks to try and improve the things that you need to improve upon to push yourself into position to either get on the bench or or get picked to start. Um, I suppose the preseason generally is um, there's a lot of time spent in the gym trying to gain lean muscle mass, getting strong again, because guys will have lost strength in the off-season, not too much, um, and just increasing their increasing their volume and load up to what you see as important for them to be able to tolerate to complete your training programme at your club. Um, it's a really tough period for the lads. Because there's so many training sessions going on uh, normally, and the training sessions are tough. Um, but whenever the games start, the lads are like, "Fucking hell, that was brutal!" So like, even though preseason was tough, um, there are no games to recover from. So as long as you look after yourself and look after recovery, look after nutrition and sleep, generally they they get better. Um, and I suppose in season. Um, if they're not playing, so if you're a young player and you're not playing, it's an opportunity to carry on that physical development. Um, I've certainly worked with kids who've not had any games for a decent stretch, um, and you take the time for them to either drop body fat, um, gain muscle mass, work on their fitness. Um, if you are playing, though, um, recovery is probably one of the biggest ones, uh, and maintaining your training load. Um, but yeah, they, they have to understand recovery uh, and nutrition so they can get from game day at the weekend through the week in the best condition to then go play again, if that makes sense. Yeah, so no, that's cool. So um, off-season really a case of chill out, recharge, regenerate, build up sort of training loads and so they can hit the ground running day one or pre-season. And then I guess pre-season is all a case of, I guess, just adaptation and just driving that and whether a case of strength, muscle mass, like these are this is your opportunity, your key opportunity in the year to actually make progress. 
and then when yeah. you transition into in season uh especially if you're playing week in week out it's more a case of maybe slow improvements but more a case of just you're maintaining what you've got at the end of pre-season yeah and i think that, i think it's a good point you just said like just because you're in season doesn't necessarily mean you can't get gains in something um they, they just slow down because you have competing demands of of playing um and just the fact you have to recover from so much contact but yeah it by no means means that you're not going to get better yeah for sure and i think um i guess like players just need to be very much aware of that like if they just enter sort of pre-season half-assed and when you take the chance and then you know they're playing week in week out you know and they still need to put on maybe five six kilos of muscle realistically they're not really going to do that over the course of that season um just because they're not going to get enough sort of volume throughout their week yes they're going to make some progression you know even if they're doing one or two decent gym sessions per week like they're still adapting from those sessions but compared to pre-season yeah. where they're perhaps doing double the load double the volume like it's just going to be far slower so i think it's case yeah. to just make them very much aware of that um and I think that's right, really important why in, say, like professional setting, like SSC coaches, nutritionists, everyone are, you know, work together to try and make them aware of that. And everyone works on one sort of congruent kind of path, should we say. Um, yeah. So, no, that, that, that's really cool. That's really helpful. Um, in terms of, like, leading into sort of the last question, really, or, uh, yeah, one before last. Um, say, for example, a, a scenario day one of pre-season, a new sign-in walks into your office. You've been told to build up a new program. You go, what do you do in terms of how do you approach it in terms of like the needs analysis side of it? Uh, the, the needs analysis is, is fairly simple. Um, like they, not that they don't have to do the, they don't have to do the exact program. Um, you, like if you don't know who this person is, like you are going to put them into the gym, into the normal gym program, um, but you're probably going to pay a bit more attention. And I, I, I think, I think just because you may be a senior rugby player and you may have been at a number of clubs, um, I suppose you, as an SNC coach, you probably never assume that someone's competent um, until you've seen it with your own eyes, which is maybe a shit way of. Uh, Shit way of uh, look, looking at it, but I suppose, you, I suppose the the underpinning thing of players in the gym is you, you need them to be technically competent, so they don't hurt themselves. If they're if they're injured, they're not on the pitch training, which means the less chance they're going to play for you. So um, yeah, they're they're still going to go in and, and do the gym program. You're probably just going to have a bit more of a, an eye on them. Um, you'll probably have a pretty thorough sit down conversation with them beforehand to find out what they're what their lifts are. So you, you'll find guys that only do Bulgarian split squats or only do trap bar deadlifts or only leg press. So you, you find out as much information as you can about um, that player and, and what, they, what they do normally in the gym. Um, fit that into your programme. Uh, and, and I suppose just assess. I mean, I've, I've worked with players who have said, yeah, I don't squat, uh, I only trap bar deadlift. And then six months down the line, they're like, yeah, actually, actually, yeah, I just, yeah, I think I can squat, actually. And you, and you sort of, and it's no different. If they haven't squatted for so long, you then have to take them back to almost remedial level and teach them how to squat again. Um, 
but there's yeah there's you find out what they can do and put it into the program um and then i suppose the on feed stuff is is interesting i suppose it takes it back to the the other question you just don't do too much too soon too quickly um find out you'll know where they've come from each rugby club has a varied philosophy of of trainings some clubs uh, do massive volume of training and poor intensity some guys are just really intense and short training sessions other clubs have huge high speed running loads week in week out so i think you just need to understand where they've come from what they've been exposed to uh, and i suppose that the the last one and the other one that sort of underpins this on feet stuff is what's their injury history um have they had an acl um has that been rehabbed well? Um, have they had multiple hamstring strains, which means they're at more risk of hamstring strains, so they need to you need to be more careful with their speed speed work and probably more diligent with their their hamstring work in the gym. So a lot of it is they will fit into the program, but there's just a big conversation piece with them finding out what they can do uh, and find I suppose finding out about their past and then using that information you have in front of you to make a educated uh, decision as as to what they do that day one and then how they how they progress i suppose within your program yeah very nice so when you're looking at when you're sort of talking about um an athlete say oh, i don't squat i just trap bar is that because of their personal preference or is it a case of like injury prevention? Like say for example, they've hurt their back before doing back squats, so they just don't do back squats. Um, what tends to be the main driver behind exercise selection from their perspective? Um, so the, the, the one person I'm thinking of, uh, who we both know, um, he, he came in and yeah, I, I haven't squatted for two years. Why? I, it normally gives me pain, so okay. Um, the physio had said the same as well. So like, yeah, we've we've had um, looked at his notes. Yeah, he doesn't squat because he gets lower back pain. So he tried bar deadlifts, which is fine. There's there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, but then, like I said, six, six months in, he's like, yeah, I won't mind. I won't mind giving it a go again. So like, okay, so we pretty much started with uh, an empty bar. And did a lot of work around uh, just technique with the bar, um, making sure all his uh, all his body parts were moving as they should have moved, uh, and then gradually loaded up. But I think the beauty of of that process was probably took probably took three weeks for him to be pretty competent at actually squatting well. And I say well, my subjective version of well, someone else might look at it and maybe disagree, but. He was getting no pain. Um, yeah, good technique. Um, but because he was already so strong, you could actually load the bar up fairly quickly. Uh, I think I think within eight weeks, he had worked up to back squatting, pretty substantial load. Um, and yeah, just did that for the rest of the season then. But I think that, yeah, in he, he realised he could do something he didn't think he could do, which is quite nice. Most likely because they've been taught it properly in the first place, and therefore just associate like a negative thought with it. Uh, yeah, and like I said, it, it had it, it had back pain, but the the back the back pain could have come from just just poor technique, um, poor posture, 
and I think it, like like I said before, like the technical competence is is what you need for every single player in the gym. No matter what age, you need a 30-year-old to be technically competent at a squat. You need a 16-year-old to be technically competent at a squat before you progress them. It's no different. Um, and when he was technically competent, then we progressed and pushed him on. Yeah, I think that's a you know a very wise thing, and I think a lot of people will take away a lot from that. I think a lot of people are just, um, especially like athletes anyway, they're just perhaps chasing the ego a little bit, just more weight, more weight, more weight, and therefore you know eventually it just overcomes their uh, you know technical ability and they get injured. So yeah, yeah, injury prevention or reducing the risk of injury, should we say, is going to be yeah the the most important part with someone in the gym. Yeah, yeah. So cool. Coming into the last question. Um, so for an average to go from so I start again. Ball side up. So for a player to go from average to elite, what are the three key things for them to focus on from an S and C perspective? So if you had to focus on three things for them to do, what would they be? Uh, consistency. So cons- consistency in training. So if if you turn up to every session, so say so if we if we say an academy player is average because they're not elite, because you can't be an elite academy player because you're a child. Um, if you if you join the academy and you train consistently and you lift twice a week and you do the program and you do everything consistently and you recover well, you're good with nutrition, you do that for 12, 15 years, assuming you've got into the first team. If you do that for 12 or 15 years, you're, you're probably not going to be too far off. Um, I suppose it depends what our uh, definition of elite is. If, if elite's playing for England, there's obviously other bits and pieces, but to go from non-professional to professional, yeah, and to thrive in consistency in training, um, the, <laughs> this is actually a really hard question to answer. Um, I think the, the other one, and it's not necessarily... Uh, Something they can necessarily focus on as such, but I think the the player has to trust um, the person who's delivering the program to them. So I think, and that that probably comes down to how how you interact with those players as an S and C coach, how you explain um, what you're doing, uh, why you're doing it, and how it's going to make them better. Um, if you can do that, and and the players buy in. Um, that consistency that I mentioned earlier is probably going to um, probably going to look after itself. Um, if they don't trust in you, they like I said they're going to go and find stuff elsewhere and try and do it offside. They're going to um, go and find other coaches, so they might find sprint coaches or whatever. Um, and then the last one. <laughs> I would say probably um, recovery. So train, train consistently hard when when you're when when it's required, uh, and be diligent with your recovery because you're only getting better when you when you're recovering. You can you can train hard every day of the week. If you don't have days where you cannot can recover, they're, they're just not going to adapt to the training stimulus. So if you do want to get better. Um, Trust the program, train consistently hard, and use your recovery days as recovery. Recover hard, as JP would say. Yeah, very nice. 
Now, I think if they uh, follow those three key things there, you know, they can have a long-term and healthy progression for their athletic development. So, yeah, very nice. And on that note, Josh, um, a big thank you for coming on board today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I think everyone would have taken a huge amount of uh, information and value away from there. Um, so for anybody who's listening, where can they get hold of you if uh, they did want to ask you very nauseating SNC type questions or you're just going to go uh, I've just got to find my Twitter handle <laughs> <laughs> um, unfortunately I've got one of those annoying double barrel surnames um, so I'm on Twitter that's pretty much the only thing I'm on uh, work wise uh, and my Twitter handle is at J underscore Daryl which is spelled D-A-R-R-A-L-L uh, underscore Jones and uh, people can, if they want to ask me questions, do it through that. I will endeavour to get back to them. No, perfect. Thank you very much. Um, right, Josh, thank you very much for your time today. I very much appreciate yeah, thanks it. Thanks for having me on. Oh, absolute pleasure. Right, guys, until next time, bye-bye.